time for the 96th QuackCast. I'm doing four in a row today. Sitting on the front porch where you can hear the neighborhood kids, the wind in the trees, and I'm certain those damn neighborhood dogs barking. This particular QuackCast is called Journal Club. There is a tradition in medical training called Journal Club. Now the first rule of Journal Club is you do not talk about Journal Club. In Journal Club, at least in the iterations in which I have participated, one article is selected by an attending, everyone reads it, and then the strengths and weaknesses and applicability are discussed by the group. Usually a top-notch, groundbreaking article was the focus, one with a high potential clinical impact. But since they were good articles in good journals, there was not a lot to learn, at least in regards to critical thinking. While the attending would often put the article in context and maybe discuss some rudimentary statistics, there was little that was discussed about the quality of the study. The main take-home of every study was to question the applicability of the results to populations that were not old white males, since it seemed that all the groundbreaking studies back in the day were VA cooperative studies of one sort or another. As I remember it, there was not really a conceptual framework with which to evaluate studies. Bayes' theorem and its application to clinical medicine was never explicitly discussed outside of testing, where you have to consider the prior plausibility of patients having a disease before you can decide if a test result is a true positive or not. In Portland, Oregon, the chance that a Lyme serology is a false positive is much greater than a test done in Portland, Maine. Generally speaking, the information overload state that is the practice of medicine, clinical trials are generally taken at face value, and tests are considered infallible, which is a shame, as I wonder how much suboptimal medicine is inflicted on patients by not considering prior plausibility and how accurate a given test is in either ruling in or ruling out a disease. There is a whole industry that is apparently based upon treating patients with no risks for Lyme, but positive tests for Lyme of doubtful provenance. But in the day, we never discussed the prior plausibility and its effect on outcomes of a studied treatment. I keep coming back to why most published research findings are false, as the archetype framework by which to evaluate the truthiness of studies. A problem with applying this paper is that a lot of big-ticket items in medicine, the preponderance of data suggests the approximate way to treat the common disease. Bruhaha to follow. I speak as a hospital-based infectious disease doctor, and most of the time patients admitted to the hospital, we have a rough idea as to what needs to be done, both diagnostically and therapeutically, based on the likely causes of the patient's symptoms. There are always fine points deriving from the individual patient's comorbidities, of course. At some level, for example, every community-acquired pneumonia is the same, requiring a beta-lactam and a macrolide as initial therapy. And every community-acquired pneumonia is different, depending on allergies and exposure history, etc. Humans tend to function in relatively narrow operational parameters, although with nearly infinite combinations of those parameters. New papers often have a vast background of similar studies that places any new work and any new results in context. I suspect that the framework of the Ionides paper has more applicability to the new, to the unproven, 
and to cutting-edge research. Reading the medical literature critically as a resident or fellow, there is little need to think about all the ways the literature could be wrong. The assumption is that these are good studies, and they are in good journals, and they are mostly right, and testing is mostly accurate. It wasn't until a decade after my training that I really start to think critically, or even need to think critically, about the medical literature, and then only as a part of my interest in scams. As a specialist, an understanding of the ins and outs of the literature comes as part of acquiring the breadth and depth of knowledge in the areas of my expertise, which is more information than you require. The limitations of a given study are always discussed in the context of the entire literature on a topic. Often, it is not that a paper is a binary true or false, but given the qualifiers of the limitations of a given study, there's a continuum of truthiness about most of the literature, even in a disease as common as pneumonia. I can talk for an hour, a non-addicting substitute for Ambien, by the way, on the issues concerning the clinical trials that resulted in the current guidelines for the treatment of pneumonia. Medicine is messy and complex, and filled with qualifiers. As for the rest of medicine, well, I don't pay that close of attention to things outside of infectious diseases. I just have so many neurons I can devote to medicine. So for areas outside my expertise, I defer to experts, which is what most of us have to do on a busy day. I think, however, that far more could be learned about critical thinking if Journal Club were devoted not to the best of the best, but to the best of the worst or as Harriet would like to consider them, the worst of the worst. Is the best worst article the worst of the worst or the best of the worst? I think hot dogs are the worst of the worst. And there is no area of medicine with worse clinical trials than scams. One such crossed the LCD this month as I prepared for my PUSCast by way of Medscape. I am, by the way, a paid Medscape blogger. It was entitled, Meditation Exercise May Decrease Cold Symptoms. Hmm, what a headline. The authors modestly refer to their study as a groundbreaking, randomized trial of meditation and exercise versus weightless control among adults age 50 years and older found significant reductions in acute respiratory illness. I love the way groundbreaking trails off into qualifiers. But groundbreaking? This requires more than a skim of the interweb summary. It requires going through the original. I cannot pass up groundbreaking, now can I? There is always the unreliable gut check to start. I read the title and think, oh, that can't be true, or that's interesting. And then I read the paper and eh, the gut check was wrong again, or cool, I will try and remember this. I tend to have that horrible Western reductionist metaphor when thinking about human physiology and pathophysiology. We are meat machines. Americans are often poorly maintained meat machines with suboptimal diets and insufficient exercise. Although my gut reaction was regular exercise should decrease the risk for infectious diseases, I must confess I did not know the data. However, the same week the meditation article was released, in my literature search I found physical activity and influenza-coded outpatient visits, a population-based cohort study, which suggests that people who exercised had fewer visits to their doctor for visits that were coded as influenza. 
A search of the PubMed reveals a smattering of studies that demonstrate both no exercise and excessive exercise increase the risk for upper respiratory infections, while moderate exercise is in the Goldilocks zone for benefit. The data also shows that immune function, however they choose to measure it, and I'm always skeptical about tests that measure immune function, is better with moderate exercise. So the meat machine runs better when active. Now in epidemiologic studies, there is always the chance that the perceived cause of the benefit, in this case exercise, is only a marker for other reasons of the effect, that those who exercise have other factors that decrease the risk. Health and disease are never as simple as they appear at first glance. But I have few doubts concerning the multitudinous benefits of regular, moderate exercise. My first reaction to meditation was bah humbug. The theory, well, stress makes one susceptible to infection. Meditation can decrease stress. Therefore, meditation, by decreasing stress, will decrease infection risk. The authors say, quote, there is some evidence that enhancing general physical and mental health may reduce acute respiratory infection burden. In a series of observational and viral inoculation studies, perceived stress, negative emotion, and the lack of social support predicted not only self-reported illness, but also such biomarkers as viral shedding and inflammatory cytokine activity. Evidence suggests that mindfulness meditation can reduce experienced stress and negative emotions. Yeah, well, a bit of a stretch, but it's interesting if it pans out. Stress is always a tricky one in the practice of medicine. Just as every patient seems to perceive that they are uniquely susceptible for bad luck, in my practice, it's usually an infection, and the patient always say, well, doc, if something bad is going to happen, it always happens to me. I have never had a patient say, damn, that's weird, doc. I'm always so lucky. It's weird how this bit of misfortune affected me. Patients often perceive themselves to be under inordinate stress and more stress than those around them. Still, the data does suggest that stress and personality type may increase the risk of infection. So it is possible if one could decrease the stress with meditation, you could decrease susceptibility to infection. I'm inclined to think that the premise behind the study, at least the exercise portion, is reasonable based on prior research. And it would be a trial that, if well executed, would provide further evidence, as if people follow evidence, as to the benefits of exercise. In their trial, not only was exercise a benefit in preventing acute respiratory illnesses, but mindfulness meditation was even better than exercise at preventing acute respiratory symptoms. Quote, We observed substantive reductions in acute respiratory illness among those randomized to exercise training and even greater benefits among those receiving mindfulness meditation training. End quote. Unfortunately, the trial has perhaps every known flaw one can make in a clinical study, and it resembles the results useless, as much as I would like them to be true. The lead author, Dr. Bruce Barrett, has been supported by the NCAAM in the past, and I suspect may have a different approach to applying clinical trials to medicine than I do. 
His response to a negative trial of echinacea for the treatment of colds was, quote, Adults who have found echinacea to be beneficial should not discontinue use based on the results of this trial, as there are no proven treatments and no side effects were seen, end quote. Now that is the antithesis of an evidenced science-based approach to medicine. But I do not know if it is representative of Dr. Barrett's general approach to medicine. I would have said, based on the data, echinacea is crap, doesn't work, no reason for it to work. So quit using it and don't waste your money. I mention this only because bias of all kinds can color the approach to a trial and its interpretation. And this trial is open to huge amounts of inadvertent bias. Perhaps the most difficult issue in the study is bias. Corollary 5. The greater the financial and other interests and prejudice in a scientific field, the less likely the research findings are to be true. Conflicts of interest and prejudice may increase bias. Conflicts of interest are very common in biomedical research, and typically they are inadequately and sparsely reported. Prejudice may not necessarily have financial roots. Scientists in a given field may be prejudiced purely because of their belief in a scientific theory or commitment to their own findings. Many otherwise seemingly independent university-based studies may be conducted for no other reason than to give physicians and researchers qualifications for promotion or tenure. Such non-financial conflicts may also lead to distorted reported results and interpretations, end quote. It is why double-blinding is so important in clinical trials, as the endless ability of patients and researchers to fool themselves and each other as to the benefit of an intervention is enormous. Without careful blinding, patient and researchers are no more than clever hands. Clever Hans was a horse in Germany who they thought could count, but actually Clever Hans was just reading the facial expressions of those around him and fooling people into thinking that he was a horse that could count. The problem with the trial well, there were small numbers of patients. While they report the outcomes of 149 patients, which is almost respectable, the protocol is actually run twice, once in the fall with 91 patients and once in the spring with 58 patients, and it was the combined data that was reported. Two different viral seasons, and it appears to be two trials that were reported as one, and data is not reported from each individual study. It is more a meta-analysis of two small, flawed studies rather than one larger, flawed study. There are multiple comparisons for both primary and secondary outcomes. When there are small numbers of patients in multiple comparisons, more often than not, anything significant is more likely due to random scatter than real effect. But the fatal flaw? It was a lack of blinding. Of course, the patients and the researchers knew who was receiving which intervention. It would be difficult to invent placebo exercise or meditation. Patients were called twice a week, and if they reported respiratory symptoms, then they received a laboratory evaluation within three days of onset. Not only were patients aware of their assignment, but the study relied on self-reporting to determine if they were starting to have an acute respiratory infection. 
It would have been more impressive if every patient had a laboratory evaluation and nasal swab for pathogens twice a week, regardless of symptoms. The one clear result of the New England Journal article was that patients who receive a placebo intervention perceive themselves as better even when they are not. So relying on patients' perception of becoming ill while on the meditation or exercise wing of the group is instantly suspect. Given the potential poisoning of the well, the lack of blinding renders the results useless. Given that the perceived effect of acupuncture depends mostly on the patient's belief that acupuncture will have an effect, one wonders how much expectation could have led to improved results in the meditation group. I wonder what results would occur if patients were enrolled in NCAAM-funded scam studies were members of the JRAF, or CSI. So much opportunity for the clinical equivalent of the Stockholm effect, trying to please your researcher. It was a preliminary study, so flawed as to hardly be groundbreaking. More in the maybe interesting if it were actually done in a way where the data was meaningful. It's the kind of study I would like to see validated. If you use the title as a Google search term, it appears that the article is being used more to justify the meditation aspects than the exercise aspects and is a validation of alternative and complementary medicine in general. At the end of the day, this article at best elicits a meh. It is so filled with flaws as to almost be a waste of the ink and paper it was printed on. But that is the way of clinical research really crappy preliminary studies whose results are either flat out wrong or markedly overstated will, one hopes, be superseded by better designed trials where the decline effect will kick in. Better trials, I predict, will demonstrate the effects of exercise for decreasing the odds of infection and the dramatic benefits of mindfulness meditation will drift towards the insignificant. The results of this particularly flawed study will persist longer than any given subsequent trial that would suggest otherwise. Quote, Adults who have found meditation to be beneficial to prevent colds should not discontinue use based on the results of this trial, as there are no proven effective treatments and no side effects were seen. I can see it coming now. And the JREF will owe me a cool million. And that ends... The 96th QuackCast. Since you know I'm doing these four in a row, you must be bored listening to four of these in a row. This is only the third in a row I have done. Why don't you go over to iTunes and write me glowing reviews? Yeah, that's a good idea.